you please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. Uh, we are going to be reading uh, from the last chapter of the book of Job, Job chapter 42. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 1 through 6 uh, tonight, and, uh, and then uh, at another time we will conclude our study of the book of Job with the last verses. But tonight we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 6 uh, of Job uh, chapter 42. As we come to this uh, last chapter uh, of the book of Job, uh, we remember uh, how the book of Job opened, that the Lord held up Job as an example of one who fears the Lord. Uh, we remember in this book that we have seen Satan believing that Job only serves God for the gifts that God gives him, and that if you were to take away all the good things in Job's life, that Job would curse God. And so the Lord allows Satan to do so. We've seen that Job lost all his earthly possessions, all his wealth. Ten children died and his own body was racked with pain. This is what we've seen. We've seen three men accuse him of terrible sin, which must have led to his suffering, and we've seen Job insist, no, that's not true. I love God, and I fear God. We've seen one man, Elihu, tell Job that he is sinning in response to his suffering. And we have seen the Lord himself in the last four chapters appear and reveal himself in all his power and wisdom and glory to Job. And so we come to Job again after many chapters of silence. Uh, we again hear from the sufferer, Job. This is the word of the Lord, Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord, and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I'll question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are helpless uh, before your word uh, to understand and to believe and to be able to know how to apply these great truths to ourselves tonight and in the week to come. So we thank you that you are our helper. And so we pray that you will help us tonight as we hear these words of the sufferer Job. That you would help us to understand what you are saying to us today. That we might benefit from the scripture. That we might be encouraged that we might go forth even this week, trusting you, serving you with all our heart and 
mind, and strength. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one theologian uh, who uh, has written much, uh, many Bible commentaries and uh, much on um, the theology of God and his work, uh, opens his great uh, work of theology with this statement. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. Then by these benefits, shed like dew from heaven upon us, we're led as by rivulets to the spring itself. Indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. Thus, not only will we, in fasting and hungering, seek thence what we lack, but in being aroused by fear, we shall learn humility. For as a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is? What man does not remain as he is, so long as he does not know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts, and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. Job, throughout this book, and many of you, most of you have been along this whole time in the book of Job. Job has been seeking God in all these chapters. And here in chapter 42, he confesses that he has found him. One of the great uh, testimonies of Job's faith, you remember, came back in Job 19, 23 to 27, where he says, boy, I wish I could engrave, uh, engrave this on stone, that I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I will see him, I myself, in my flesh, will see him. And, uh, and that was a great 
testimony to us of looking forward to that ultimate day. Now, we all look forward to that ultimate day of consummation, indeed, when the Redeemer will be seen. He'll stand upon the earth. We will see him uh, with our own eyes. Uh, But for Job, uh, he gets this uh, foretaste of that time to come here at the end of the book. And he testifies himself that he has, here at the end of Job, he has seen something of God through his suffering and in his suffering. And what he sees has a profound impact on his life. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The first thing that Job sees at the end of this book about God is that God is, in fact, the sovereign God overall. I know, says Job, you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, that is, stopped. You will accomplish all your holy will. I know this now. You know, other, other than a brief word in chapter 40, where Job pledged that he would hold his tongue, we've not heard from Job himself since chapter 31. And you might remember what his last words were before Elihu came on the scene. This is how Job had ended his last words. Oh, he said, Job 31, 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Uh, The last time we had heard from Job, he was saying, Oh, that God would come so that um, I would have opportunity to, to ask him why all this suffering has happened, and he would have to answer me. Oh, that I had that opportunity. That was the last we heard from him. And then Elihu spoke for six chapters, preparing the way for the Lord. Now the Lord has spoken for four chapters, more with a barrage, an overwhelming flood of unanswerable questions than anything else, displaying the power and might and wisdom and goodness of the Lord. First of all, in the heavens and the earth, among all his creatures. And then last time we saw over the mightiest creatures on earth, like a behemoth, and Leviathan, and, uh, and one of those questions that God put to Job was this, in the face of such power and glory, who is he who can then stand before me? Right? God reveals his glory and power and wisdom, and one of those questions to Job is, who then who can stand before me? Job wanted an audience before God, so God would explain himself to Job, but we find out at the end of the book of Job, it is Job... It is Job who must answer to God. Job is now ready to answer, we find out here. And as he speaks, gone, you might notice, are all claims of innocence. Gone are the demands for an opportunity to speak. Gone are the cursings of his day of birth. Remember that in chapter 3? Gone are the questionings of the Lord's justice and goodness. Instead, Job, he says, I've come to know two things of Two things about God. All things are possible. He's just heard about what God does. This is what I know. All things, he says, are possible for God, and no one can thwart his purpose. And friends, this is simply what we call the sovereignty of God, that he is master, that he is Lord over all. This is what we 
hear from the lips of Jesus when he tells us that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but it's not impossible for God, you see, because with God, all things are possible. We find these kind of testimonies throughout the, throughout the Psalms and from the lips of David. For instance, Psalm 138, verse 7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. We hear it from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 11, that God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. We hear it from Paul in Romans 8, that all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is what Job knows now about God. And this is true because God is sovereign. Thomas Watson uh, wrote this, God's purpose is the ground of our assurance. Here, he says, is a sovereign elixir. That means a, uh, an amazing uh, something for you to drink down. A sovereign elixir of unspeakable comfort to those who are the called of God. Their salvation rests upon God's purpose. This is what Job knows, that, that God's purpose cannot be thwarted. And so if his purpose is our salvation, and uh, you're a believer, nothing can thwart that. The foundation, the Bible says, of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Writes Watson, our graces are imperfect, our comforts ebb and flow, but God's foundation standeth sure, the Bible says. They who are built upon this rock of God's eternal purpose need not fear falling away. Neither the power of man nor the violence of temptation shall ever be able to overturn them. Job knows this. God can do all things, and his purposes, which are good and holy, cannot be thwarted. But for Job to come to this point, he had to see something of the sovereignty of God. That is, he had to see his power, his might, and his wisdom. Now, now Job has really confessed this, as you recall, throughout this book. He, he has already confessed earlier in the book uh, he believes in God, he fears God, he knows God, but he had to experience this in a deeper way. Isaiah saw the Lord seated in Isaiah 6, and, uh, and it changed him. Ezekiel saw the Lord in Ezekiel 1.1. Paul saw glorious things, he says in 2 Corinthians 10. Seven, he saw such glorious things that, in fact, he said the Lord had to give him a, a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't go through life boasting <laughs> of everything that he'd seen. And so the Lord graciously gave him a thorn in the flesh because, uh, because he had seen such great things, and this was meant to humble him before the Lord. But he, he saw something of the glory of God. John saw it on the island of Patmos, something of the glory, the revelation of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. But you say, well, I haven't had a vision of God and his sovereignty. But you need to remember, and we need to remember that Job himself, nowhere here in this dialogue in Job, other than the fact that the, Lord say, that the Bible says the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, nowhere did we read here that God somehow appeared to Job in a theophany or some kind of revelation of his person or the pre-incarnate son or anything like that. 
So when Job says that what he had heard with the ear he now sees, he's not saying that he actually had a vision of God. He's simply saying that what he had heard from the Lord through his word had completely changed how he saw and experienced the Lord. Something of his sovereignty. And so we don't need a... uh, We don't need a vision of the Lord. We do need his word, though. And that's all that Job had, too. But what Job didn't have to know about the sovereignty of God was was verses like this from the book of Acts. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was delivered up according, the Bible says, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. So that was a wicked act of crucifixion, causing the Lord Jesus to suffer. But the Bible says the sovereign God had a definite plan that Christ would die for sinners. Or Acts 4, 27, 28, Job didn't have this either to learn about a sovereign God. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant. This is the church praying to the Father, and this is what they pray. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod and Pilate, oh, you read the the gospel history and their wickedness and their sin and they're trying to avoid responsibility and that that was all wicked sin. And here's the early church praying, Father, we know that even Herod and Pilate did and were simply instruments in your hand even to accomplish our salvation in the death of Jesus Christ. They accomplished what you had determined for them to do so that we would be saved, you see. That he is a sovereign God. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul says, every Christian sees this truth at some point or another. That is uh, the glory of God. That he is the sovereign God. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6. He's speaking about unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them. This is what the, uh, the evil one does. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, that is, Master, Sovereign, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness at creation, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, Takes the blinders off our eyes so that we can see, in fact, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need eyes to see. And Job says, I see now you are the sovereign God. I see now, says Job, that you are the incomprehensible God. Verse 3, 
Who is this? Here Job is quoting exactly what God had said to him in these prior chapters. God had said to Job, verse 3, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job responds, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes again, The Lord who said to Job, Hear and I will speak, I'll question you, and you make it known to me. And so Job here confesses he's seen something else about the Lord, that he is in fact the incomprehensible God. Now, the Lord had confronted Job a couple chapters ago, chapter 38, uh, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Then chapter 40, verse 7, dressed for action like a man, the Lord said. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And here Job responds to the Lord that he spoke of things he did not understand. He recognizes that the plan of God, the purposes of God, are things too wonderful, that is too amazing, too beyond him to know. Job is confessing here that that though he couldn't understand or make sense of his suffering, he knows now it made sense to God. For Job to have demanded, which he did, an answer from God, for Job to demand further information from God, which God had chosen not to reveal, was foolish and unwise. (laughs) And Job sees that now. He didn't know, he didn't understand what he was talking about. That's what he says here. These things, he says, are too wonderful. I said things I shouldn't. I thought things I shouldn't have thought. I spoke as if I understood things, but I didn't really understand. The Lord, through Moses, you'll remember, instructed the people this way in Deuteronomy 29, 29. He said, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to you and to your your children. And Job Job had to learn that there are some things that only God knows. Job had to learn that while God has revealed 66 wonderful, rich, glorious, soul satisfying books to us, He has not revealed everything. And these last four chapters in Job, where the Lord is speaking, have been meant to convince Job and us of that truth, that there's things you don't know. (laughs) And if you're wondering about that, just read over those four chapters again. There are so many things we don't know or understand about the ways and purposes and power and wisdom and glory of God. Things I don't understand, says Job. Things, he says, too, too wonderful. Psalm 119, 129 says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Psalm 136, 4 says, To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures 
forever. And you know that wonderful uh, psalm, Psalm 139, uh, that we uh, love to read. This is what it says. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And the psalmist again, Psalm 145 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. And don't forget, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Full. After seeing Jesus at work, Luke testified this way, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. That was the, the life and ministry of Jesus, things too wonderful, which means, of course, that if your religion and your Christian faith and your Christian experience leaves no room for wonder, no room for questions, no room for mystery, if your Christian faith leaves no room for things too wonderful, then you are, in fact, in the same boat as a life as, and Bildad, and Zophar, who believed that they understood everything about God and His ways. And they had God, you see, in that box. And they thought they knew everything. And that's how they ministered to Job and ended up making things worse rather than better. And if that's your God, you'll also find yourself with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar at the end of the book of Job, which we'll find next time, that is being rebuked by God for having small thoughts of him. Friends, there are things too wonderful about God, the psalmist Again and again, testifies to this, Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. <laughs> like a weaned child is my soul within me. This morning I was holding... Sigrid, like this, not weaned yet, but just, she's just, just sitting there, so peaceful and uh, restful, and the psalmist says, Lord, I haven't tried to, I haven't tried to get into your secret counsel, but uh, it's too high, it's too wonderful for me, I'm, I'm just like a weaned child resting in you. Your greatness and your goodness, because you hold me. And I, 
and I trust you. I suppose that's why Jesus used children, used the humility of children to give an example of what we must become to enter the kingdom of God in Matthew 18. Remember that? The disciples were arguing about who's, who's the best, who's the greatest, that kind of thing. And Jesus called a little children and child and put in the midst and said, unless you become like this child, you see, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Not childish in faith, not childish in, 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 in foolishness or something like that, but in the, in the humility of a child. And what the psalmist is talking about here, a child who, who rests uh, and, and trusts in their parent to care for them and to love them, to provide for them. And children, of course, have a wonderful sense of, of wonder, wonder at God. Winnie the Pooh has a never-failing sense of wonder, and that's why children love Winnie the Pooh. The wonder of a butterfly, the wonder of a firefly, the wonder of a sunset, the wonder of a stream, the wonder of a leaf flying through the air. Job says, I, I see now. You are the sovereign God, and, and you're the incomprehensible God. There's things too wonderful about you. And about your ways. I shouldn't have spoke the way I did. Lord, you are too great. You're too beyond me. Friends, is your God a manageable size in your life? Have you figured God out? Nothing more to know? Nothing more to understand? No more amazement? Have you lost all the wonder? Said J.I. Packer, reverence excludes speculation about things that God has not mentioned in his word We should, said another, give God the same place in our hearts that he holds in the universe. Said Thomas Carlyle, the man who cannot wonder is but a pair of spectacles behind which there is no eye. Said G.K. Chesterton, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, said this, when we cannot, by searching, find the bottom, we must sit down at the brink And adore the depth. When we have found God good, said Henry, we must not forget to pronounce him great. And his kind thoughts of us must not abate our high thoughts of him. Said another, the larger the island of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of wonder. And said A.W. Tozer, the greatest need of the moment is that lighthearted, superficial religionist be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. I know, says Job, you can do all things. You're sovereign. You're too, things too wonderful for me. You are incomprehensible. And Job sees something of the the glory of God. Verse 5. I had heard, said Job, I'd heard of you, By the hearing of the ear. But now, my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I dare say, this is the experience of all God's people at one time, 
or another in their life to truly see God in all his glory. Job here, the Bible says, despises himself and repents in dust and ashes. That is, he despises the things that he has said about God. Dust and ashes, that's the typical symbolism associated with being humbled before God. Now note what Job is, what Job is repenting of is not sin which led to this terrible suffering. No. He is repenting of his sinful attitude toward God, which was in his response to his suffering. It's not that this suffering came upon him uh, because he had sinned against God. We know that from the beginning of the book. God loves Job, and he holds Job up as a, as a trophy of grace. And he, he says to Satan, look at, look at Job. He loves me. He fears me. And so at the end of this book, it's not that Job is repenting for sin that brought on suffering. No, that wasn't the case. But he is repenting of how he has responded to God in his suffering. He did not reject God, but he allowed hard thoughts of God to creep into his mind and and into his heart. Like, as we've seen, is God really good? Is God really just? God owes me an answer, Job had said. And friends, Job repents of all this. He says he despises the thoughts and the attitudes and the words he's entertained and used of God. To despise means to recant. It means to reject. It means to repudiate. Friends, not only does Job see God in his sovereignty and incomprehensibility and glory, but he sees himself better too, you see. Necessarily, a sight of the glory of God, the Bible says, brings Job to his knees and the place of repentance. And notice again, it's not that Job has received some kind of visible vision of God. He simply heard God speak to him out of the whirlwind. The word has come to him and revealed to him who his God really is. And Job repents of all those sinful thoughts he had about the good, gracious, and glorious God. And did you know that at the end of the book of Job, as we come to the end of this book, that his suffering is as much a mystery to him at the end of the book as it was at the beginning. If Job were to ask, Lord, why did I suffer? God's answer is, I am sovereign, glorious, good, and too wonderful for your thoughts. If Job had asked the Lord, why am I suffering? God has responded, not by giving an answer to Job's question, but in fact, by revealing something of his glory to Job himself. So that Job simply repents of his sin, throws himself at the feet of the Lord, and expresses trust and confidence in him. That's important. What has changed? Well, not Job's circumstance, 
yet. Nothing's changed in Job's circumstance, but he says, I have seen God better. And his attitude changes. Said William Henry Green, great Princeton professor, he who has learned to place his soul and undivided trust in God and to estimate all things by the standard of his perfection, that is his sovereignty, his incomprehensibility, and his glory is beyond the reach of any serious attempt to detach him from the Lord's service. What Green was saying was this, that if you see God in his wisdom and power and glory and might and sovereignty and his wonder and in his glory, says Green, if you see him, nothing will be able to pull you away from him. Even Satan himself, you see. Instead of demanding an answer from God, Job bows in humble repentance in the presence of majesty. He's a sinner dependent on grace, and God is gracious to Job. God does not abandon Job. God has never abandoned Job throughout this book. He has been with him. He has been working in him and through him. He has been sanctifying him. He has been leading him uh, step by step to see God better. Job has grown, friends, in understanding the character of God. But we need eyes to see, don't we? We need eyes to see. This is what Job says. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You know, the Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen one day, but it's much better (laughs) for us if we bow today and see that Jesus Christ is Lord today, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because friends, when we see God as sovereign, incomprehensible and glorious, our suffering doesn't go away. Just as the suffering of Jesus did not disappear, but it does enable us to trust and believe that his perfect and pleasing will will be done. And we do not accuse him, we do not challenge him, we do not doubt him, but we humbly submit ourselves to such a glorious, wondrous, sovereign God, knowing that he will work all things, you see, all things, all the things in the life of Job and the life of you and I for good, even as he worked the most wicked act and the most painful suffering in all of human history for good, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. 
that sinners like us and sinners like Job might know God, fear God, be reconciled to God, and love God through faith in His Son. Charles Wesley wrote this wonderful hymn, Love Divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art, visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Thee we would be always blessing, serve thee as thy hosts above, pray and praise thee without ceasing, glory in thy perfect love. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, until we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. May that be so of us. May we, with Job, be able to say, I had heard of you, dear Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you in all your glory, and I find myself at your feet. May it be so for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your We thank you, dear God, for your word and for the the blessing of being able to have you speak to us. And Lord, to see how your work in the life of your servant Job led Job to, to see you for who you are. And even in the midst of suffering, be able to confess that you are glorious, that you can do all things and that you do all things Well, even when we don't understand, because there are things too wonderful for us to know. And help us, dear God, tonight, right here, who we are here at Sovereign Grace. Oh, Lord, how we need eyes to see. You've told us in your word that it is the evil one, even as it was the evil one in the time of Job, who wanted to blind Job to the wonder of God the wonder and glory of who you are and your goodness and grace, even as the evil one wants to blind us today and has blinded so many of our friends and family all around us. And so, dear God, we pray that by your grace, you would give us the eye to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who died for us, rose for us, that we might be changed. Help us, dear God, to be found with Job, adoring you, humbly bowing before you, knowing you and you alone are God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.